Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Pick up where we left off week before last. Thank you, Josh, for leading last week. Um, I was in North Carolina at Edna's home church, a church that she grew up in. Uh, now my mother goes there. Edna's family goes there. Um, on a good Sunday, um, their crowd would be about this big, maybe. Um, they don't have, all during last week, um, they had to find somebody from another church to come and play the piano for them. Their pianist couldn't be there. Sunday morning, they didn't have anybody to play. And uh, yet, faithfully, week after week, they continue to gather in that place and they worship God and they're making a difference in their community. And, uh, you know, I, I think we take for granted so often um, the blessing that we have of having musicians on a regular basis, having people who lead singing. Uh, the pastor at that church is a jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, as the old saying goes, he preaches, he leads the singing, he does the bulletin, he is in charge of all their social media, uh, he probably cleans the church. They may have somebody who does that, but it may be him. And just week in and week out, these people faithfully serve, they faithfully attend, and there are not many of them, but they're always there, and they're always praising the Lord. And... Uh, it reminded me last week just how, um, just how grateful you and I ought to be on a daily basis for what God has blessed us with. I often wonder what the, what the coexist crowd would say to Peter about his epistle of 2 Peter. They were to meet him. I have an idea of exactly what they'd say because I hear it all the time myself. They would express shock at his dogmatism. They would say he was, that he had an intolerant attitude that, darkened back to the, that harkened back to the dark ages. They would insist that nobody ought to sit in judgment of anybody else's religion, no matter how radical it might be. And they would conclude by saying, after all, pastor, Nobody can be sure that you're right about what you believe about God. So we might as well just all try to get along. Here, put this coexist bumper sticker on your car and let's just go along. And as sure as I am of what the tolerant left and the social justice crowd would say to Peter, I'm also equally sure that the protests that they might make would have absolutely no effect on him he would probably look at those easygoing religionists right in the eye and declare that false teaching in the church is not a matter to be taken lightly. He would point out that heresy can be devastating, especially to young Christians. He was well aware that people who are sincerely seeking answers to life's problems 
but who are not well acquainted with the Bible and what it teaches, those people are very vulnerable to false doctrine. And so he would remind them that we have a direct revelation from God in which we can find the difference between truth and error. It is his word. As we've gone through this particular section of 2 Peter, and and next week we'll begin to get into what Peter teaches about the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord and second coming, those kind of issues. But as we've gone through this whole thing about false teaching, Peter has reminded us that we need to recognize that false teaching is dangerous. It is ultimately going to be judged by God and we must be very careful to reject the sinful and self-centered teaching of false teachers. So we come to the end of chapter two. We'll begin reading this morning in verse 19, and he's gonna give us one more instruction for dealing with false teachers and false teaching. So let's stand in honor and reverence to the reading of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Second Peter chapter two, beginning in verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also is he brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to a true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having been washed to her wallowing in the mire. Father, help us to understand what Peter is teaching here uh, to us about false teaching, about false teachers. And may we apply that in our own lives as we look to Find the way that you would have us to serve you and reach our families and our friends for the Lord Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Peter tells us that we need to remember the true condition of these false teachers. They they are unhappy people who are destined to a very unhappy ending. You and I need to pray for wisdom so we'll know how to help these people. We need to be sure, however, we do everything in our power to keep them from corrupting our own beliefs. You see, immature believers need to be warned about false teaching. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to guard us from error, keep us uncorrupted, by the world. So when you confront the true state of false teachers within the church, we're gonna do that this morning by answering three questions. Three basic questions that Peter answers in this section of the text. Number one, can a person profess faith in Christ and still be lost? Can a person profess faith in Christ and still be lost? Here's a second question. What are the basic elements of salvation? And the third question is, what ultimately happens to a heretic? What ultimately happens? So let's look at them in that order. 
The first question is, can a person profess faith in Christ and still be lost? Is it possible for a person to say they're saved and not be saved? Well, it is. It is possible for a person to appear to be a Christian without having ever been born again. A person may enter into a church. They may become involved in that church's activities. They may speak confidently of their faith in Christ. They might sing in the choir. They might teach a Sunday school class. They might serve as a deacon. Uh, They might stand in a pulpit and preach. But if that belief in Christ is not real, it is nothing more than a mental assent to biblical doctrine. And that person does not possess saving faith. And I'm afraid that the church today, the the, the church in general is filled with people who profess to be saved, but in reality, they're not. And so that's a bold statement to make. How do you know that? Well, a person who is genuinely saved, a person who is genuinely saved will make every effort to forsake the sins that they enjoyed before coming to Christ. A truly saved person has more than just a superficial understanding of the Christian faith. An unsaved person will return to his former life of sin, his heart hardened, his degraded state worse than it was before, according to Peter. We believe in the eternal security of the believer. We call that doctrine once saved, always saved. But what about Peter's statement that the Uh, apostate is worse off than he was when he started. That's how he says. He says, uh, while they they promised them liberty, verse 19, uh, they themselves are slaves to corruption for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after having escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. What about that statement? Doesn't How do you reconcile what Peter says here with something like uh, Jesus said in John chapter 10? You remember? In John 10, it's my favorite passage in the New Testament. John 10, 27, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man ever pluck them out of my hand. Is that a contradiction? Is what Peter has said a contradiction with what Jesus said? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Write this down. Profession of faith does not equal possession of salvation. Profession of faith does not necessarily equal possession of salvation. Not everybody who claims to be a born-again believer is actually a follower of Jesus Christ. The person who denies the Lord Jesus after having made a quote-unquote profession of faith in him, turns to, turns, returns to his wicked way of life, participating in the whole sinful nature that they had before they claimed to have gotten saved, were never really saved to begin with. They weren't saved to start with. Write this passage down, Matthew 7, 21. Here's what Jesus said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. 
but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say unto me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we done many wonders in your name? And I will declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, by all appearances, these people were born again. They were members of the church. They had performed miracles in the name of Jesus. They taught Sunday school. They had had, uh, been deacons in the church. But they had never received Jesus as their Savior. And to them, Christ will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Just because you profess it doesn't mean you possess it. There's another example of that found in another parable that Jesus teaches. It's the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. You remember the seed is sown and Jesus tells the disciples some of the seed falls on a hard surface in the pathway and was eaten by the birds. In other words, there are going to be people who come into church and they hear the gospel proclaimed, but they never respond to it. That's those that have been hardened and the birds eat it away. Some falls on rocky ground, he said. And the seeds sprout up, but the shoots die because of a lack of nourishment. Some of the seed falls on fertile soil. And the seedlings, they germinate, but eventually they get choked out by the weeds. Ultimately, only one-fourth of the seed that is sown in Matthew 13, only one-fourth of that seed results in any kind of harvest that's real. In that parable, the seed symbolizes the word of God. The soil represents your heart and my heart. And so the meaning is clear. Some people hear the gospel message, but they never give it any consideration. Some people go through the motions of accepting Christ and they make a promising start but they're not really saved. Soon they fall away because of some difficulty that comes in their life. There are some people who sincerely respond to the word of God. They become fruitful Christians and they bring forth fruit. Why is it so many people in the church today are unfruitful? Why is it that so many people in Southern Baptist churches who claim to be saved have never led one single person to the Lord? They've never let go of this world with both hands and took hold to Jesus with both hands. That's why. Have you ever done that? Is he Lord of all? Many of us are not fruitful because we've never really been saved. The seed got in, but the seed never got an undisputed hold in our lives. And we've never said, Lord Jesus, you are Lord of all. And listen, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. He cannot be half Lord. There's nothing wrong with the seed. There's nothing wrong with the sower. The problem is in the soil. Problem is the heart. 
So Peter answers that first question. Can a person really profess to be saved and not be saved? And the answer is absolutely yes. World's full of people just like that. Who have, who have joined a church, who got baptized, who may be involved in every activity in the church. They may participate in everything, but they've never really accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they're not fruitful. They're lost. How about the second question? He points out the possibility of making a profession of faith without actually having been saved. Well, then what about the second question? What are the basic elements then of faith? What does it really mean to be saved? The faith that truly saves is characterized by two things. The first one is you and I must have a conviction. We must have a conviction that we are lost, we are under the condemnation of God, and that we are unable to save ourselves. You first have to have that understanding. You can't walk around and say, well, I'm, not that, I'm really not that bad of a person. If I'm really not that bad of a person, then I don't need a savior. See, the only reason I need a savior is because I'm under condemnation. I'm under condemnation by my own sin, and I am unable to save myself. Here's the second element that is absolutely necessary in salvation, and that is this. You must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and you make that decision. It is a personal decision to accept Christ with the belief that he died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin that he was buried in three days he rose again in order to break the power of sin in my life. Those two things are absolutely necessary to be saved. I didn't notice I didn't say baptism. Notice I didn't say church membership. Notice I didn't say going to Sunday school. Notice I didn't say tithing. None of those things are necessary to be saved. All of those things are the result of being saved. You do those things because you have been saved, not in order to be saved. In order to be saved, you have to understand you're under the condemnation of God. You are an enemy of God because you have sin in your life and he is completely sinless. He's holy, he's righteous. And so I'm under condemnation for my sin. I'm unable to save myself. Paul would say, dead in trespasses and sins. Erwin Lutzer was uh, the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago for many years. Uh, he also taught in a seminary somewhere up there, and he taught preaching. He would take his students, first couple of days uh, of, of the class, he would take his students, they'd get in a, a vehicle, and they would drive to a local cemetery. And he would go out into that cemetery, walk up to this tombstone, and he'd read whoever's name was on it, and he'd read what day they were born, what day they died. And then he turned to one of those first-year preaching students and he would say, preach the gospel to that person. What do you mean preach the gospel to that person? We're standing in a cemetery. I can't preach to that. That's a dead man. He said, no, preach the gospel to that person. What good is it gonna do? He's dead. He said, I want you to understand that that's what you do every single Sunday morning when you stand up to preach the gospel. You are preaching to dead people. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. 
And you must come to that understanding and then you make a personal decision to give your life to Jesus Christ. Jesus repeatedly emphasized the fact that you and I are condemned sinners, that we cannot save ourselves. The religious leaders of Jesus' day wanted nothing to do with that kind of teaching. Listen, religious people today don't want anything to do with that kind of teaching because they're self-appointed spiritual authorities who look down upon themselves or look out over their own noses and declare themselves to be righteous because of their religiosity, because they go to church, because they follow some rules. They prided themselves, these people did in Jesus' day. They prided themselves on a show of great piety and good works. They treated others with disdain and they considered themselves to be spiritually superior. But Jesus in Matthew 9, 13 said what? I have not come to call the righteous to repentance. I've come to call sinners to repentance. I didn't come, he says, well people don't need a doctor, do they? Who needs a doctor? Sick people. Who are we? Sick people. We need Jesus. As long as a person thinks that they are good enough to earn their own salvation, or as long as anybody thinks that they can do anything to even contribute something to their salvation, they are not ready to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you don't come to Jesus as a helpless, condemned sinner, acknowledging your need for cleansing and forgiveness, you will never be saved. There must be a personal decision to receive Christ. Consciously believing what the Bible says about Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin. Just say, well, I believe that. That's not it. Just giving mental assent to the doctrines of the faith is not it. You must personally accept him as your savior. Just because you agree with the Bible doctrine, just because you quote a few Bible verses doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. You can be very orthodox. You can be faithful in church attendance. You can live a good life. You can even believe in God. But if you have never personally trusted the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are not a Christian. So remember, profession is not necessarily possession. It is possible to make a commitment to Christianity just to please mama and daddy. It's possible that you walk down the aisle just to escape some difficult situation that you were in. Or maybe you just wanted to give yourself a spiritual dimension to life. It's even possible to be a faithful church member without being saved. Outward profession does not necessarily mean you have inward possession. A genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, having acknowledged his sinfulness, having received Jesus Christ as his Savior, has the gift of eternal life. That's how you know. You have completely surrendered your life to Jesus. He is Lord of all. You won't become one of these apostates. You won't become one of those people who turn aside from the teaching and walk away. You will never perish. 
So now we're ready to answer the third question. What ultimately happens to people who persist in their distortion of the truth or in their rejection of the truth? Look at verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. And then Peter adds in verse 20 that their fate will be worse than those who never made a profession of faith in Christ at all. For if they, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. That's a pretty solemn warning, wouldn't you say? A person may have heard the word of God. A person may have outwardly professed belief in it. Maybe they've even participated in the activities of a local church. But if that individual then deliberately disavows truth and goes back to the old pattern of life, he is going to be punished far worse than the chief of a pagan tribe in Africa who has never even heard the gospel. And you need to understand that. That's what Peter says. You came to church, you were brought up in the church, your mom and daddy brought you to church and you heard the gospel and maybe you even got, you even made a profession of faith. You walked down the aisle, you got baptized, you joined the church. But then you make a deliberate decision to turn away from, and listen, I see it happen all the time. All the time. All of a sudden, that teenager gets big enough, old enough to, to make his or her own decisions that I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't believe that stuff mom and daddy believed. Oh, listen, I know some because I baptized some of them. I baptized some of them. They came forward. They made professions of faith. They said, yes, I want to believe in Jesus as my Savior, and I baptized them. And now... They want nothing to do with the church. They don't want anything to do with the, with the belief in Christ. The Bible says, having heard the word, having maybe even responded to it, they become entangled in the sin that they were involved in before they ever got saved. Their punishment in hell is going to be even greater than the person who never heard the gospel to begin with. You can write this down if you want to. Great privilege always brings with it great responsibility. Great privilege brings great responsibility. There are people who were exposed to the gospel, even professed to believe, joined the church, and then went back to their own ways. They came face to face with the truth. They saw what the gospel can do in the lives of those who trust in Jesus. They observed people who were being delivered from bondage of sin and fear through faith in Christ. They witnessed the power of the salvation of God and yet they turned away from the Lord. They went back to their old sinful life. Listen, what an insult to God. 
What an insult. Well, preacher, they must have lost their salvation. No, they didn't. They never had it to start with. They didn't lose their salvation. They never had it to begin with. Well, how do you know that? Preacher, how can you make that determination? Well, because of the illustration that Peter gives in verses 21 and 22. That's how I know. I didn't just make this up. Look at what he says in verse 21. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them, but it has happened to them according to a true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, a sow having been washed to her wallowing in the mire. In all the Bible, how does God refer to his children? What animal does he use to refer to his children? Sheep. Always sheep. There is never a single time in the Bible that God refers to somebody who has been saved as a dog. There is never one time in the Bible that God refers to somebody who has been saved as a pig. So here's how I know that he's not talking about saved people losing their salvation. He's talking about people who never had it to begin with because he refers to them as dogs and pigs. Now, Jews didn't think about dogs the way you and I do. We love dogs. I mean, we, we think dogs, they're, they're nice house pets. Everybody's got dog. Everybody loves dogs. But when you called somebody a dog in Bible times, that was about as low as you could get. There's not anything you could call somebody that would be worse than calling him or her a dog because to a Jew, a dog was nothing more than a back alley, mangy, garbage dump scavenger. That's what a dog was. And that's what they thought about dogs. In fact, in, in, in those days, Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs. Now look at the illustration. He says, but it has happened to them according to a true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. So here we got a sick dog. He eats something he ought not to eat. That's a dog trick to start with, ain't it? Eating something they ought not to eat. And he gets sick. And then he heaves. And then he vomits. And there it is but something enters his mind. He says, wow, there's a warm meal right there. You say, pastor, that's gross. Peter meant it to be gross. He meant it to be gross because the dog returns to the scene of the crime and what does he do? He laps up that which he has just regurgitated. Now, second illustration, you got a pig. Somebody says, we're going to change this pig. So we bring the pig out of the pig pen. We bring him out of the filth and out of the mud. And we take the pig in the house and we put him in the bathtub and we scrub him up and we pray, spray some of that uh, eau de toilette uh, on him, make him smell good, put a bow around his neck and a ribbon on his tail, take him into the living room. I'll tell you, something's going to change. 
but it ain't going to be the pig. It's going to be the living room, right? You take the pig in the living room, something's going to happen. It's not going, the pig is not going to all of a sudden say, oh, I look nice. Oh, I smell good. No, no. As soon as that front door opens, that pig's going to say, I'm sick and tired of being in this house. I'm getting right back out of here. And where is it going to go? Right back to the mud hole, right where he came from. The dog felt better when he vomited, got all that out of his system, right? Dog felt better. The pig looked better. But what's the problem? The dog is still a dog. The pig is still a pig. You can change the outside. You can make somebody feel good on the inside. But until their nature has been changed, they will return to that which is in their nature. And so this is not talking about, you, you say, well, I know somebody who joined the church and they got saved when they were a little child and then they just went away and we ain't seen them since and we don't know what happened to them. They must have lost their salvation. No, they didn't. They never had it to begin with. They never were saved. You know somebody who regurgitated without repentance. You know somebody who got scrubbed, but they didn't get saved. A person cannot be confronted with the word of God without making some kind of decision. There is no such thing as moral or spiritual neutrality. That's an impossibility. If you don't know whether or not you're saved, then the time to make sure of it is right now. Bible says today is the day of salvation. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous to go on professing to be a Christian and, and claiming that you're saved when you know deep down in your heart that you really aren't. Peter describes these people as servants of corruption in verse 19. And he said they really are worse off than those who have never even heard the gospel. Some of us need to be concerned about our own children. Some of us need to be concerned about our spouses. You know, my child made a profession of faith when he was eight, nine, 10 years old and he got saved and he got baptized. Well, where are they today? Well, there's just so much going on. They don't have time for church. They don't have time to do this. They don't have time. Are they serving Jesus? Well, no, we're, uh, they, they will, but not right, not right now. You're just trying to sugarcoat something that you don't want to admit. There's a very real possibility that that child never really made a profession of faith at all. That he or she got saved because mom and daddy, listen, I had a woman come in my office one time and said, I want to talk to you about scheduling my child's baptism. I said, has your child been saved? No, but it's time for him to get baptized and get saved. I said, well, I tell you what, why don't we let the Holy Spirit take care of that one and not you and me? She took her child, left the church, found somebody who would baptize him the way she wanted to. You cannot remain neutral to the offer of salvation. 
And the thing that we need to remember is that the call that you hear today may be the last call you ever hear. Because the Bible says the Spirit of God will not always strive with the Spirit of man. You're not going to continue to hear. You can't say, well, maybe I'll do it next week. Maybe I'll do it next week. Maybe I'll do it some other time. Maybe I'll blah, blah, blah. Every time, every time you reject the call of the Spirit upon your life to do anything, the next time you hear it, it's a little more faint than it was the time before. And then the next time, it's a little more faint. And then it's a little more faint. And then it's a little more faint until finally you don't hear it at all. It is a scary, scary thing to never hear the voice of the Spirit in your life. Because if you ever get to that place, it's very, very difficult. That's why it's so difficult for adults to get saved. Because most of the time, They've heard the gospel so many times, they've heard it so many times, that they have come to trust in themselves. They've come to trust in, the, they're going to get in on mom and daddy's coattails or grandma's coattails or um, husband and wife's coattails or something like that. And, and they say, well, I, I'm a member of the church. That ain't going to get you nothing. Peter says, make sure that what you profess is what you possess. Possess. 